Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. And, and interestingly, our guest today is going to be able to cover pretty much all of those three pillars of SALT. The SALT Talks are a series of digital interviews that we started during this work from home period and are going to continue even after hopefully we kick this virus um, that provides an audience into the mind, uh, provides our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts who are leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're also trying to do during these SALT Talks is provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are changing the future. And today we're very excited to welcome Jim McKelvey to SALT Talks. Uh, Jim is a serial entrepreneur, an inventor, a philanthropist, an artist, an author, and a, a glass blower as well, which I'm sure we'll get to during the talk. And he's the author of a, a book called The Innovation Stack, Beating an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time, which I would highly recommend for those uh, that are entrepreneurs or looking to build a business. Uh, Jim is the co-founder of Square, uh, and he also served as the chairman of the board until 2010, and he still serves on the board of directors. And Square has been one of the, the big success stories in the tech industry over the last decade. In 2011, uh, Jim's iconic card reader design was included in the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, Jim uh, founded Invisibly, which is an ambitious product to rewire the economics of online content in 2016. He's also the deputy chair of the St. Louis Federal Reserve. If you have any questions for Jim during today's SALT talk, a reminder, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And conducting today's interview will be Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony's also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Well, Jim, it's, it's great to have you on. I got to hold up your book. I love the cover, the innovation stack. Just holding that up for everybody. Building an unbeatable business, one crazy idea at a time. Uh, you probably think John Darcy's uh, sane and I'm crazy, but I just assure you when this is over, you'll realize it's the exact opposite, okay? He's the one that's nuts, not me. But I want to go to you, okay? The book is great. We're recommending it to everybody. I'm holding it up. Uh, right after college, you graduated from Washington University, amazing school in St. Louis. You had a degree in economics and computer science, and you had, you had authored two computer programming textbooks. Uh, how do we get there to glassblowing artists? Tell me what happened here. Tell me the evolution of Jim McKelvey. Uh, so it can be explained by basically bad planning, or, or in my case, no planning. Uh, I graduated with these two degrees, took a job with a startup run by a crook. I was too clueless to realize that the guy was a crook, right? Sometimes you work for a guy who... Sometimes that happens. You can work for a crook and you can be <laughs> clueless about it. That, that <laughs> does happen to people. I have empathy. <laughs> Sometimes it happens. And Darcy, don't be looking at me, okay? I'm talking about other people, Darcy, okay? <laughs> Go ahead, course, James. You, you would never make a bad decision like that. So no, I've, I've made my series of bad decisions. Sometimes, you know, a little bit too gullible, Jim, but go ahead. I'm sorry. So I ended up in this situation and um, I, uh, I, w I realized what was happening one day. And so I went and I quit. I was like, oh, this guy's screwing everybody he deals with. I'm going to, my number is going to come up next. So I went in and I just quit. And I didn't have another gig lined up. I didn't have another job. And so I woke up the next morning. I was like, oh, crap, how am I going to pay the rent? And the answer was, I thought, well, maybe I could sell my glass work because I was, I was you know, doing glass. I'd just taken one year at college, um, but I was, uh, I was TA for the 
for the college and, and I had access to the studio. So I went in, I thought I could make some work and sell it. And it just turns out I couldn't because my work sucked. But it's amazing how good you can get at something if you say, this is what I got to do, right? So um, within six months, I was making a really good income. And uh, I've just stuck with it ever since. As a matter of fact, I'm heading to the studio this afternoon. So I've been a glassblower for 30 years. And it's a great, well, it was a great business. And now it's a great hobby. All right. Well, before that, uh, you co-founded Square with Jack Dorsey, who's all, Dorsey, who's also the founder of Twitter. Uh, uh, and so, tell us a little bit about that. And you, you lost two thousand dollars on the sale at your studio, apparently. And I want to hear that origin story. How did it all come together? How did Jack, Jack find you? You find him? And how did you get this amazing business started? So, um, right after I became a glassblower, this was 1989, uh, I started another company, which I still have today. Um, as a matter of fact, um, that's where I met Jack. I hired Jack when he was a 15-year-old kid. His uh, mother was our, um, I wouldn't say drug dealer, uh, but she would but sell us. could say drug dealer. It's okay. You know, we're, well, we're so we bought from Marcia Dorsey chocolate covered espresso beans, which before, before Ridland was readily available, right. um, you know, they're basically putting into the water supply now, but back in the, you know, in the early nineties, if you wanted to stay awake, you munched on uh, coffee beans, right. Covered in chocolate. And we bought piles of this stuff from Marcia. We found out her son liked computers. We worked with computers. Um, so this 15 year old kid shows up and uh, that was Jack. And he, He's an amazing guy. He did a great, uh, great amount of work for us. And, you know, we became friends uh, and sort of 20 years later, I guess it was 15 years later, um, he had started Twitter, gotten kicked out of Twitter and was back in St. Louis for Christmas. And we started talking and Jack said, hey, why don't you come out and start a new company with me? And I was like, great, what do you want to do? And he said, well, I don't know, what do you want to do? And so we went back and forth. Neither one of us had an idea. But then I was in my school. You guys are going to start a company. Can you invite John and I to the lunch table? We, we would be interested. I'm just letting you know. That would be great. It wasn't a very posh thing. Like we were having this conversation in my studio. I mean, Jack was a nobody. I was basically an artist. Um, you know, so it didn't, it wasn't this big thing, right? Um, but uh, I was there trying to sell a piece of glass. And the truth of the matter was, it was this piece of glass that I hated. Like I just, it was ugly. It's just, terrible. And uh, this lady was going to pay me like two grand for this thing. And I lost the sale because I couldn't take an Amex card and I was pissed. And so uh, it was a phone sale and I was talking to her on, you know, one of these things. And I looked at this thing and I, you know, my attitude towards this device is it turns in anything I want, right? It becomes a phone, a TV, it becomes a map, you know, it becomes a, you know, anything. This thing should turn into whatever I want, but it wouldn't turn into a credit card machine, which is what I wanted to turn it into. So I called Jack up in California and I was like, hey, we should turn iPhones into credit card machines. And that was the idea behind Square. So didn't know if it was going to work, but uh, turns out it was a pretty good idea. Well, not a good idea. It was an amazing idea because you had a seam in the marketplace where credit card companies uh, I don't want to use the word gouging, but let's use the word gouging. Okay. They were really taking a vig off of these small businesses. And so you interceded uh, and you closed the gap for them. So that was a huge benefit to small businesses. Is that fair to say? Oh, a ton. 
a ton. So uh, what I discovered in starting Square was that the lower part of the market paid most of the fees. The little guys got screwed way bigger. And it was, uh, I actually ran the math and it was, if you calculate the profit that you make on a transaction at Walmart versus the profit that you make on a transaction at a small company, it's 45 times higher. So the little firms are paying almost 50 times as much as the big ones are, right. which is unconscionable. And so just for all of our viewers and listeners, that is a huge competitive disadvantage. We're going to have the author of Monopolize on, uh, I believe that's next week. Is that not right, John Dorsey? Yeah, it's on Monday. David Day, an author of Monopolize, talking about uh, big tech monopolies. Yeah, so, so what happens is if you're Walmart, you can squeeze down the credit card company. But if you're mom and pop in St. Louis on a local Main Street, you cannot. And so you guys came in and helped them split the seam. Uh, which uh, is a great, great thing for the country. Yeah, yeah. So it, it turned out to be a really great thing. And, um, and then interestingly enough, and this is actually the reason I wrote the book, was uh, three years later, we got attacked by Amazon, like one of the big, you know, monopoly companies. I mean, <laughs> I try not to knock Amazon too much when I'm trying to sell a book. But look, the fact is, when Amazon attacks a startup, the startup dies. And Amazon copied our product, undercut our price by 30%, and everyone expected Square to just get wiped out. So how did you, Amazingly, survive, how did you survive that? Well, that's the funny thing. We didn't do anything differently. We looked at all the stuff that we were doing, and we were doing everything for a good reason. So we didn't change anything. We didn't even lower our price. Um, and then we sort of fought Amazon for about a year and then Amazon gave up. And, um, and when they gave up, they actually, they, they mailed one of these little square readers to all their former customers. So I got to say out of respect for Amazon, when they quit, they quit in a sort of admirable way. They were sort of gracious in defeat. Right. But I couldn't explain what happened. You know, the, the, the amazing thing to me was, why did we beat Amazon? Because if you look at the history of companies, like this doesn't happen. Like startups don't survive this. Right. And somehow we did. So, you know, I was happy we won, but I couldn't figure out an explanation. So I started, I, I basically started researching because I, you know, I'm not, I, I get obsessed with problems. And um, so I started looking for other companies that this had happened to. And it turns out if you look back in time, there are literally hundreds of examples of the same thing having happened throughout time. Yeah. And so when I saw this pattern, I was like, oh my God, like this is really interesting. But the problem with doing historical research is you can really delude yourself into thinking you're right because you can you, you like cherry pick your examples and then you're like, oh, I've proven that the sky is always red. Well, no, it's not. But you're just taking your photos at sunset after, you know, dust is in the air or something. So I took all my research. It was funny because I, I, I done all this historical research. Uh, so basically I was studying dead people um, and I needed to find somebody who was alive. And so I called Herb Kelleher, who's the founder of Southwest Airlines. I called up Herb. Legendary entrepreneur. He's phenomenal. And, uh, you know, dearly missed the guy. Uh, but I, I asked, I, I flew down to Dallas I took all my research to Herb and I said, Herb, I think what happened at Square is another example uh, of what happened at Southwest. What do you think? And then I just shut up and let the man talk. 
and he got really excited and he, uh, he told me a bunch of stuff that was exactly the same things that happened to us. And, uh, and I said, okay, here, you know, 15 other companies where I've seen the same pattern. And he's like, he's like, this is exactly right. He says, I've never heard it explained this way. He's like, you need to go write this, you know, you need to go write a book. So Herb Kelleher was the one that basically convinced me to write a book. Um, but I didn't write, want to write a normal book because I hate business books. I don't know. I mean, I see your bookshelf back there. Man, I almost feel sorry for you. Because um, a lot of these things are just disastrous, boring tomes. I mean, the, um, the books behind me you feel sorry about? If you've saying? read all of them, I'm looking at a few of them. I won't sort of out some well, of the authors. Pick out one that you dislike. Go ahead, that you feel sorry about me. Okay, what, you know. I, there's the there's the beautiful wife though right yeah like that. I mean those aren't bad right but okay, what which book on the shelf you don't like Go ahead. Edison Edison I couldn't get through that book by the way okay just Did put, you, that's right I got that, book, I got that as a gift yeah I couldn't get through it I and and by the I way since Edmund Morris wrote the Reagan book up Dutch <laughs> uh, he's gone downhill in my mind but you know somebody sent me that book. Somebody sent me this book, though. This book is pretty terrific. Okay. So what they should have sent you was this. So the original, my original book was a graphic novel. Oh, okay. The whole thing was cartoons. Yeah, I need, I, I need that. I need that. I, that I'm surprised I didn't send you that. I'm sorry, man. I'll send you one. All right. I need, I need one of those. But let's talk about this, though, okay? Because yeah. this is an ingenious revelation. And if somebody can actually read this and understand this, their business is going to get a lot better. Uh, and so tell the people that are queued in here right now what this is about. What's the central thesis of the innovation stack? So the central thesis is that there is a difference between doing something that's never been done and copying. And that sounds pretty obvious, but it wasn't obvious to me over 20 years because I was always going to business conferences and reading books and talking to experts whose problems never seemed to be like the problems I was having. And the problems I was having were typically the problems you have when you're doing something that's never been done before. And that's different from doing a business where there's a trade show and they're experts and they're consultants and they're things that are known to work. And the reason I think I was ignorant for all these years was because the word entrepreneur today means business person. So if you start a company, you start a coffee shop, we call you an entrepreneur. You start a you know, dentist office. Well, if you open it, you're the entrepreneur. You, know, you start an accounting firm. Anything that you do to start a business, we say entrepreneur. But that's not why the word was originally used. The original use of the word, and I had to go back and do linguistic history to figure this out. The original use of the word meant somebody who was crazy doing something that has never been done and might not work. So the Wright brothers trying to fly for the first time, they were entrepreneurs because if you look at the history of aviation, at least in the early days, there was a lot of death and burning and you know mangled flesh. And so like if you were one of those guys who was trying to fly when humans had not figured it out, you were an entrepreneur. So it's a totally different set of rules if you're not copying. And copying, I'm not knocking copying. Like I try to copy everything. I, I, try and never do anything original unless I have to. It's sort of a last resort. But if you're trying to solve a problem that's never been solved before, then you gotta think differently. And, and the process of thinking differently is one that we don't even discuss because literally, Anthony, the, the English language doesn't have a word for it. 
And when I realized this, I was like, oh my God, it explains all these problems I was having. So, so that was the genesis of the book. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I wrote it as a graphic novel, like it was supposed to be a cartoon. I showed it to Herb. Herb hated the idea of being portrayed as a cartoon character. So he said, he, I was really surprised at this because Herb had a great sense of humor, but he, he basically said, look, if you're going to make this as a cartoon, leave me out. So I rewrote the book basically as text out of respect for this man. Um, but the fundamental idea in the innovation stack is that if you put yourself in a situation where the only solution is to create something new, then you better understand that the process of invention is different, that it's not usually one or two single things, it's probably 12 or 14 or 20 different things that you're gonna to have to do differently. Those things themselves are going to influence each other, which causes this giant mess. And this becomes what, what I call an innovation stack. And if you look at the history of companies who've dominated their industries, at the beginning of every industry, there's one of these, there's one of these innovation stacks. Now it doesn't happen that often because most businesses are copies of other businesses. But when it does happen, things get really interesting and really different. And that's what I wrote about. Well, I, but I also think that there's a lot in here about how you have to adapt to your environment, right? And so your, your, your plans for Square, they didn't go perfectly. I mean, you had to make yeah. changes, you had to make sense. So tell, give us a few examples of your plans making contact with the enemy and competition and what you had to do to innovate and switch up that stack. Oh, oh great example. So we were, um, we, we decided to connect our little square reader through the headphone jack. So it was going to plug in, you know, through, I've got like one of the last phones with a headphone jack. I've got a little Samsung here, but like, this is how we decided to connect, which um, Apple didn't want you to do. Apple wanted you to connect through their dock connector, which at the time was like this inch long thing. And we were sort of, uh, you know, the violating the uh, iPhone <laughs> by plugging in through the headphone jack, which nobody had done before. And we were sure it was going to piss off Apple. So our great strategy was to get Steve Jobs to cover us, right? So um, Jack got in touch with Steve. That was not easy because Steve was very ill. Um, but Steve agreed to meet with us. Now this was, you know, 2009, 2010. Uh, Steve was, he was pretty sick, but. Well, he died uh, in 2011. So yeah, he was having a hard time. He had just probably gotten his liver transplant. He'd right? just gotten his liver transplant. He wasn't seeing too many people. But we got an audience with Steve. Uh, and uh, I was terrified because I was the guy that built all the hardware. So Jack was, Jack was writing software. I was the guy that physically had to build this thing, okay? And if you know anything about Steve Jobs, you know that he was a design zealot. I mean, like he didn't have any furniture in his house because he couldn't find anything that was good enough. Right. And when- He drove, he drove Laureen crazy. I mean, Walter Isaacson write, writes about it in the book. He couldn't buy a couch, the poor guy. No, no, the guy, like if it wasn't perfect, like Steve wouldn't touch it, right? You would hand Steve a pen and if it was ugly, he'd you know. So, so I'm the hardware guy. And I gotta, I gotta put a piece of hardware in front of Steve Jobs. I'm freaking out. I'm just freaking out. And so, um, so I, I, I'm a good copier. Like I'm like, okay, I need to Steve steals own, Steve's own idea. So I go to the Apple Store and 
I look at the Macintoshes and the, you know, the, the Macs were all these sort of brushed aluminum, mm -hmm. you know, sort of pill. I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking at one right now. I'm touching it. Yeah. There you go. Oh, yeah. The Mac. Right. So I was like, okay, Steve likes aluminum, right? <laughs> so I get, a, I got to get a block of aluminum and I'm milling uh, the first square reader out of a block of solid aluminum, shove all the electronics in there, um, test the thing out. Like I've been awake for two days. It works. I get it to work. Fly out to see Jack. Hand it to my partner, because Jack's the one that's actually going to do the meeting. I hand it to Jack. Doesn't work. Oh, he hands God. it back to me. I'm like, no, 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 man. Look, it works. It works. It works. And then he hands it to Jack. And I, I got to show you with a credit card what's going on here. Credit card here. Uh, try not to show my credit card number to the whole world. Um, but like what was happening was as Jack was swiping it, he was holding it like this to keep it from rotating because the thing spins. Right, 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 right. Right. So Jack would swipe like that and it would never work. When I swipe, I go like this. So I don't touch the thing. Well, aluminum is an electrical conductor. Sure. And on an iPhone, this is not the grounding plug. This is the grounding plug. So I was basically making an open circuit. It was effectively a heart monitor. Got it. Because when Jack touched it, the thing shorted out, picked up his heartbeat, and totally ruined the signal. Okay. This before a demo with Steve Jobs. Right. I've totally made something that looks cool and doesn't function. Got it. Um, the good news is, well, there were sort of good and bad news. Um, the meeting, I think we were lucky. The meeting got canceled because Steve got sick again. So we didn't actually have to do the meeting. And I, I, built, a, I built them out of plastic ever since. Um, but look, that's just, I mean, I can but, tell you. But, but when you eventually got the meeting, he probably loved the design, right? Because it looks like the, uh, the old iPod, you know, the small iPod, the mini iPod. Steve never saw it. Oh, he never Steve saw never it. Saw it. Okay. He, got, he got ill. Um, he canceled the meeting. Uh, we actually, we actually showed that first prototype to Mike Bloomberg, uh, cause we had another meeting with him. Um, but, uh, we were actually, I think we may have been saved by the fact that we didn't meet with Steve because the funny thing was we were expecting Apple's lawyers to just tear us apart. And what was funny was that Steve was such a powerful force at Apple that, I believe the fact that we even had a meeting with him was enough protection that the lawyers weren't going to attack us. So just getting on his calendar was probably what saved it. But again, I don't know. So mission, so mission accomplished. So I, I have to, I have to turn it over to uh, John Dorsey because we have uh, tremendous audience engagement. But before I do, I want to ask you one more question related to where you are going, because I think, you are a polymath and you are a genius. And I want to hear about another contribution that you are going to make to our civilization. What is it going to be? And it could be glass blowing. That's totally fine. But I see something else in your future. And I want you to tell us what it is. So I got three things I'm working on right now. One is actually in the studio I'm going in today. I'm making another set of, um, I'm trying to make a cool rocks glass. Um, I've been spending a lot of time drinking lately and, uh, you know, pandemic. Um, and I just realized that, uh, 
I didn't like the glasses I was drinking out of. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go and try to try to make an object. I haven't made a consumer object in 15 years. So I'm gonna go in and see if that'll work. So uh, don't get your hopes up for that one. All right, well, that's number one. You said there's three. So where are the other two? Uh, the second is a project called Invisibly. Um, basically, the economics of content are broken. And I think that's fixable if we can get micropayments working. That's a bunch of gobbledygook that nobody should understand. Here's the basic problem that every human has. You are not allowed right now to pay more for good stuff and less for bad stuff online because most online content is, is either subscription or advertising supported. There's no way to pay more for good and less for bad. And which the, the problem with that is it's not all free, right? Content isn't free. You, 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 you pay for content essentially with your attention, but because your attention doesn't have this signal built in whether or not you like the stuff, crap gets the same price as quality. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately that's, yeah, that doesn't work. So what I'd like to do when I go out is signal to the world that, you know, if I spend 20 bucks on a hamburger this afternoon, I'm basically telling the world to, you know, kill more cows and, you know, build, you know, more slaughterhouses. If I go out and spend five bucks on a, you know, Beyond Burger, uh, that's gonna be a different vote. And that's how the economy works. But it doesn't work online and it doesn't work for a bunch of reasons. So anyway, I sat down with a bunch of economists at the Fed. We figured out how to fix this. The problem is it requires micropayments to work. And if you know anything about the history of micropayments, it, they've never worked. They, everyone's had the idea and nobody's ever gotten it working. So I'm working on that. That one, that's a long shot. But if invisibly works, it's going to meaningfully improve people's control over their eyeballs, which I think is a good thing for the world. No you know, the other thing that I'm doing right now is a project called Launch Code. Um, and Launch Code is something we started uh, about seven years ago. And it's a free, uh, it, it's a free class in programming. So the deal with Launch Code is you show up, we don't charge you anything, we give you free education, and then you get a job. And we get you a market rate job. And we've been training thousands of people. And uh, that's sort of a, uh, it's a nonprofit, but uh, it's, solving the talent gap in programming. So those are the sort of my, my three big awesome. focuses. Awesome, well go ahead, Mr. Dorsey. We got a ton of questions for you. And cool. uh, I'm holding up the book one more time, The Innovation Stack. Everybody should be reading this book. And, uh, and uh, by the way, I'm getting texts from Jack Oliver. He says hi, by the way, so I just throw that oh. out. Oh, talked to Jack last week, all right. Jack, 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 all right. He says you're a genius, but we sort of already know that. But go ahead, Dorsey. Yeah, I have a follow-up question about Invisibly. How much of this idea was born, you know, in the last several years? There's been a lot written about how, you know, a lot of these uh, journalistic outlets have gone behind paywalls, and we want to make sure that journalists get paid for their work, and that seems to be the most sustainable business model for a newspaper outlet that's publishing online, for example. But then you have a lot of disinformation that's out there, and it's free. So what's happening is a lot of people who don't have the means to have subscriptions to the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, they're instead consuming, I'm not gonna name these disinformation outlets and, and give them that platform, but a lot of people are consuming stuff on Facebook and social networks that's out yeah. there for free. How much of, of that idea is born out of the desire to make sure that people are consuming the right information rather than disinformation? So um, there's sort of two questions there, I'm gonna take them both. Uh, the first is you named three of the five subscription models that work in the English language. 
Financial Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and The Economist. If it's not one of those five paywalls, it's ad supported or losing a ton of money. Okay. Um, and although those are, those are five great information sources, like I as a consumer want to be able to read stuff from all sorts of different sources. Um, and right now, none of those sources are making money. So subscription is not going to save everybody because you just as a consumer are not going to have 40 subscriptions. But over the course of a year, I'm probably going to want information from 40 different places. So we really need to figure out a way um, to like it would be it would be like me saying, OK, pick five chain restaurants you're going to eat at for the rest of your life. Right. You kind of go, well, Does this apply to streaming outlets as well? Not to interrupt your your missive, but I, mean, I feel like the same thing is developing with these streaming outlets is that now everyone's uh, unplugging from cable but there's 15 streaming companies out there and you have to subscribe to all of them to get the content you want. Could a micropayment system work for the you know, digital video content as well? It, 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 it works in theory, John, but it's really hard to set up. And we haven't figured out how to turn that corner yet. And I've burned $30 million, $30 million so far, and I have got nothing, nothing significant to show for it. The only thing I've got to show for it, which actually is significant, is I've got a survey tool, like part of our tech, we just, started playing with politics, um, I can call elections now. Like I can, I can literally survey and get within a point of the final vote total. It's amazing. Actually, that's one of the reasons I was talking to Jack Oliver last week. <laughs> but you know, the politicians are all over us because we got this tech now. Um, but that's not what the company's about. It's just this, it's just weird quirk. But if you need to call an election, let me know. Um, but you know, uh, the, the, the other, I'm sorry, I forgot the other part of your question. Um, it was about, you know, how much of this idea was born out of, you know, this disinformation, uh, oh, the amount yeah, of free yeah, disinformation yeah. that exists disinformation. out there on the internet today. So it was, it was not born out of that, but I will give you a really interesting piece of insider information that only the ad tech people know. And that is if you take, take one of those readers from one of those five, expensive publications you've mentioned. Okay, so this is somebody who's got enough money to spend, you know, 100 bucks a year subscribing to some content source. Okay, now let's take the value of that person's eyeballs as an advertiser or as an advertisee versus somebody who reads something that is laughably fake news. Okay, whose eyeballs are worth more per second? You want to take a guess? I would think the person is willing to pay for the subscriptions. Yeah, most people make that conclusion. You're not only wrong, you're wrong by a factor of 10. Oh, I love, I love the way he's sticking it to you, Darcy. I don't even, I don't even have to, keep going, Jim. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn my camera off. Hold on, this way you, you guys can just talk together. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm down. My camera's down, Darcy. Go ahead, McKelvey. There you go. So, uh, no, no, no. Look, I mean, it's the same conclusion I make, which is why I, I think this is so, so it turns out that if you are so gullible that you believe the fake news sites, your value as a sucker for whatever product they're advertising is 10x. I can prove this. Like I've seen the numbers. You get more money if your um, audience is the sort of person who believes unquestionably or unquestioningly the content. 
The critical thinkers, the people who ask the questions, we're not worth that much as a set of eyeballs. But if you're gullible enough to think you should shove your IRA into gold, or I don't know what they're advertising now. I don't see a lot of that stuff, but like I've seen the data, it's, it's chilling. There's a case study in that today. There was a indictment in New York City about a crowdfunding campaign to build the wall on the southern border where they preyed on uh, you know, zealots uh, to crowdfund the building of the wall because the, the government was stalling on building the wall. And you have four individuals, uh, one of which is very familiar to Anthony, uh, who, who, uh, who have been now indicted because they were preying on the exact people that you're talking about. It's, it's so sad. I, I have to say, like, preying on the trust of others is abhorrent. And I wish I had a solution to that. I will tell you that Invisibly does not. Like I've, all we're doing, the only thing we're able to do if our system works and it doesn't work yet is to give consumers the ability to pay more for good stuff and less for bad stuff and to control how their eyeballs are being bought and sold. Because right now your eyeballs are being bought and sold a thousand times a day without your knowledge or consent. So we're gonna give you that control. What we can't do is make you exercise that in a thoughtful way. And so let me use an analogy with food, because people understand food. What I wanna do is change the model, which is currently, here's, here's the model that your, your, your intellectual food is being created under. We're never gonna make much money for it, so we're going to pay the absolute least amount for our ingredients and sell it to you at a fixed price. So, that's the equivalent of saying every lunch in New York City costs 10 bucks. And you say, oh, great, 10 bucks. I'll eat at a fancy restaurant. No, you won't, because the fancy restaurant just closed, because they can't put the food on the table for 10 bucks a plate. So all you're going to be is fed the cheapest crap that they can get their 10 bucks from. And that's, that's, that's the model that we're living in with content. So in our system, it's like, the economy today. You'll have cheap options, you'll have expensive options. If you choose the expensive options, that's great. But if you choose the cheap options, that's also great. The, the, the interesting thing though, is that we wanna have the consumer exercising uh, this choice in a way that's responsible, but we're not gonna tell them what to eat. So the analogy here is look, you can go out and have a healthy meal, you can go out and have a meal that cumulatively will kill you. That's your choice. So I'm not gonna tell you what content's good, what content's bad, what's fake news, what's realness. We're not gonna get into any of that. We're just gonna reflect the value that the consumers see back in the price. But it's- well, We could talk about invisibly all day, I think. I wanna pivot a little bit back to innovation stacks for a minute. You, cool. know, you talk about how Square, you know, ultimately prevailing against Amazon in this space is an example of an innovation stack. Are there other, any other prominent examples in today's business world of innovation stacks? I can think of one uh, potentially with Tesla, you know, now the market yeah. cap of Tesla having encompassed yeah. the entire automotive industry, but are there any right. others that, that provide an example for people of what innovation stacks are? Well, I mean, there are dozens, but let's take your example. Tesla's a great example because, you know, Tesla didn't copy all the other car companies, right? All the other companies, were doing basically internal, internal combustion engines. And when they did try to build electric, they built these sort of, you know, glorified golf carts 
that, I don't know if you've ever seen an EV1, but uh, the GM, I mean, GM beat Tesla to market with an electric vehicle by a decade. And yet it was, it was such a, I mean, they, they just got it wrong. And I, I think it was because like in, in the world of General Motors, like working on the electrical car, electric car is like punishment. You know, like you're a bad engineer, they make you think, oh, we're going to, you know, send you to the Russian front, right? Or make you work on the EV1. You can make a golf cart that slows down when you go up a hill. Um, but Tesla, what they did was not just one, two, three things. They've probably got an innovation stack that's 40 or 50 things long. Now, I don't work at Tesla. You know, I've, I've met Elon Musk, you know, I, I some total of five minutes in my life. So it wasn't like he and I got deep on anything. Um, so it's a, but, but even from the outside, you could look at the way they're packing the batteries, the way they're putting capacitors in front of the batteries, uh, the software, the way uh, the car drives, the way it unlocks, the way they deliver the car, the way they sell the car, like the Tesla dealership network. Oh, wait a second. You're not buying this, you know, uh, you know from Scaramucci Auto. No, it makes sense. I think it's happening a lot in the that financial industry as well. That would be a hot car, well. McKelvey. That could be our next business, you and me, okay? I'm, I'm doing a lot of, it, would uh, have, it would have an 80s feel. Okay? Yes. And there would be a lot of ostentation to that car. Okay, I just want to make sure you guys know that. I think David Lee Roth is available. <laughs> well, it's happening a lot in the financial industry as well, where you're, you're seeing people from the tech world come and attack problems that are traditionally you know, financial industry problems, and they're thinking about them in a different way. It's allowing them to re-engineer these systems without, you know, preconceived notions of the, the conventions that existed in the past. Yeah. So look, here's, here's the whole point of the book. Um, I'll save you from having to buy it now. Uh, and that is innovation is this thing we all talk about, but it's really hard and really unpleasant and probably should be the last resort. I'm not preaching innovation. I'm not sitting here going, look, this is what you should do. I'm a big believer in copying solutions, except that it doesn't always work. And when people find themselves in a situation where there's an unsolved problem that they can't copy the solution to, almost everybody stops. And I still feel that urge to, to quit as well. But when I was writing the book, I had this person in mind, and I always think about her because she's super competent. Um, she's you know, intelligent, hardworking. She's got all those qualities for somebody you would say, oh boy, this person could be doing great things. And she does do great things, but she only does, do, does great things when she has permission to do it, i.e. a degree or a credential or somebody saying, oh, you're qualified to now work on this project. And when she encounters a problem that has not been solved before, she, she says, oh, I can't do this. And I'm like, wait a second, no, 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 you can. And we had this conversation. She's like, well, I'm not qualified to do that. And I was like, look, nobody's ever done this. You can't be qualified. So like today, like, all right, I'm going to fly a plane today. That's, I got to get in a plane. I've literally got like a freaking book here that I got to sit here and read on, you know, the Garmin G1000 because I just put a new, everyone's going to hate me now. But I, I got I to gotta read this stupid book, okay? And, and then I got to go, Take all these tests because today, if you want to get in a plane and fly a plane, you better be qualified. Great. That's the way it should be. Orville Wright, who gets in the I'm right- I'm going to interrupt you though, because you're talking to capitalists, okay? Fellow capitalists. I love the fact that you have your own plane, okay? I want everybody to have their own plane. I want them oh. to read the innovation stack so they can figure out how to buy their own plane, okay? All right, but keep going, okay? This is great. 
Okay, so, so, the, so the point is, like if you want to get in and pilot a plane today, you get qualified, you get trained, you get certificated, you pee in a cup, you're good to go. The Wright brothers could not be qualified to fly the first plane. Nobody is qualified the first time. You build the first anything in the world, I don't care what it is, you're not qualified. Nobody's qualified. You don't get credentials and, and permission and diplomas and little badges until it's become something that humanity has already solved. So if you want to spend your whole life limited to the world of already solved problems, then you're going to have a great life. Nobody's going to give you any shit. Nobody's going to sit there and, and tease you or tell you you're stupid or call you crazy. Uh, you're, you, you know, but unfortunately, the world's never going to move forward unless some of us sort of step off the edge and usually fall, but sometimes we end up pushing the frontier of what humans can do a little bit further. And that's innovation. And it's unpleasant. And it's something we don't talk about because we don't even have the words. But it's something that like, I think is desperately necessary. And I mean, the reason I wrote a book, which by the way is hell, like writing a book for three years is, well, it's rewriting a book. You write the book and then you rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it until it becomes readable. But like the reason I put myself through this is like the only way I could possibly think of to get more people off the bench. So the reason I want people to read the thing, I don't necessarily want them to buy it. You can steal it. Like freaking, I'm sure there's a tour copy of my book out there. Like, but if you get the idea that at some point in your life, you may encounter something where all of your training, all of your credentials stop being relevant and you don't necessarily have to stop moving at that point. Like we can get a few more people moving. I think, I think it's brilliant. I just want to, as a public service announcement for Penguin Publishing, uh, buy the book. It's, wor it's worth every bit of the uh, $22 that you got to spend on it. I want to leave you with one last question, Jim. Yeah. And, and it's a follow-up to what you're saying about how we need to get people off the bench. So we had a great conversation at our SALT conference in 2019 between Mark Cuban and Steve Case on the idea that entre entrepreneurial success can be found outside of Silicon Valley. And there's this, you know, there's this bubbling up of entrepreneurial zest that exists you know, in the American heartland. You live in St. Louis, other areas of the country, other areas of the world, frankly. You know, Mark Cuban has invested a lot outside of Silicon Valley. Steve has a fund called the Rise of the Rest Fund dedicated to funding entrepreneurs outside of Silicon Valley. You launched uh, Launch Code, which is a nonprofit to try to get people from non-traditional backgrounds free education and job placement opportunities in tech. So how do we really, how do we tap into that, uh, that entrepreneurial spirit that exists in parts of the country, but they not, might not have access to capital or expertise or the confidence they need to go out and truly innovate? So I, I, I and I get in a lot of trouble for saying this, I've never seen a problem with access to capital. Okay, so I, I've got a VC fund, I get pitched all the time, which is, by the way, a horrible business because you just, like people lie to you professionally. Your job is to basically have these people lie to you all day long. It's, uh, it's gruesome. Um, but I hear people talk about, oh, I don't get any, I don't have any capital. It's like, well, maybe your idea is a little messed up or maybe you didn't do enough work. I'm mean, like, like the investments that we make, we're fighting off other investors. Like we're like, these elbows are sharp for a reason. I mean, so, so I don't see that, but, but what I do see is a sort of clubbiness to 
uh, tech entrepreneurship, which has historically persisted in the Bay Area and to a lesser extent New York and a few other cities around the world. And the cool thing about a pandemic <laughs> uh, is that it is all now coming apart. This club um, that the rich belong to, which is the club of New York or the club of San Francisco. And by the way, if you don't think you have to be rich to live in San Francisco and have a normal life, like go check rents there. You know, I've got engineers earning well into six figures that have five roommates. That's how expensive San Francisco has become. And if you're a normal person and you have the skills, but you don't have the financial ability to, you know, move to a coast, maybe you've got some, maybe you've got a parent you got to take care of, or, uh, you know, maybe you've got some other things that prevent you from just upping and moving. Well, we're breaking these clubs up. I mean, like right now we're, I mean, I guess we should all be sitting in a room together, but we're not, we're Zooming. And, uh, you know, there's some lag over the video and a few other problems like that, but we've basically pulled it off, right? And I don't know where you are. And I don't know where Anthony is actually, assuming it's a bunker somewhere, you know? But, I'm in you know. A, I'm, in a heavily, I'm in a heavily fortified bunker with shitty books behind me, but it's so far so good. Cause my, that Edison my wife, book is, my wife is still class. allowing me to stay that, here. I mean, once in a while she throws food in through the, <laughs> the door, but I'm fine, I'm fine. But, the, the sheer density of the writing is going to be the thing that protects your head from the blast. It, it, it is a twist of irony. You will be saved. I will eat on my words. And God, I hope that wasn't published by Penguin. Um, but anyway, the point, the point is it doesn't matter as much. So cities like St. Louis, where it's pretty pleasant to live, and we got great healthcare and great schools, and you know houses are really nice and cheap. I mean, hell, we'll give you a house in certain parts of town. Um, it's, it's opening up talent to more opportunity. And I think that's what we need. So I love what Steve is doing. Uh, the rise of the rest is fantastic. His bus came through here. I was, I was on it and, you know, spoke at the, at the events and, uh, I love that what Steve is doing. Um, and I think we're just going to see that not because it's a good thing to do, or we're being nice to Ohio or anything like that. It's just because Look, greed is a good thing to harness and greed is uh, smiling on lower cost, higher quality of life cities right now. As long as the town's here and it can move remotely, baby, live in St. Louis. It's a great city. Or whatever right. you well, uh, city. pick what you like yeah. and live there. Well, I, I, I think, you know, and, and you should know because uh, people are texting we're getting questions and answers jim you're a phenomenal guy and you've left an amazing impression on our delegates and so i would love to get you back um, anytime this has been super fun you guys, i love it you gotta do me a favor you got to be careful flying the plane man, because you're holding up the uh, the operational manual there <laughs> and you know i'm not saying i wouldn't get in the plane with you i would definitely put darcy in the plane with you first though i just like to try it out with darcy before before i, I take a ride with you but I want you back on our show so we can talk about where the future is going. You're going to be a big part of it. I have no doubt about that. So we're very grateful to have you on. Anytime. This is, this has been super fun. You guys ask great questions and uh, it's, this is, this is fun. Yeah. All right. Thank well, you. God, God bless. We're going to turn it back to John Dorsey. So he usually does the happy recap 
Uh, go ahead, Mr. Dorsey. Well, I'm very excited and, to see your progress. Make one with comment him about George Washington, McKelvey. Look at what this guy thinks of himself with the George Washington portraits. I mean, I, I, I've, I've tried to create books. a background yeah, that, that, uh, that lives you know, up to Dorsey Anthony's at bookshelf. night. He walks around with that wig on. Okay, I've heard that from his wife, by the way. I right, go ahead, John. That's a good idea. Well, Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Um, thanks everybody for tuning in. I highly recommend uh, Jim's book. Uh, will hopefully, help you either take that leap into entrepreneurship or decide that that, that journey is a little bit too painful uh, for you. And I think Jim provides both of those perspectives in a, in a great way in the innovation stack.